the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. Thank you for joining us. I've really been looking forward to this interview for some time. It's been far too long since I've interviewed the man who I'm about to have a discussion with who's had a a tremendous influence on my thinking, and not just on my thinking, but on the thinking of thousands of people um, um, in in America and around the world in the issues of economic freedom um, and economics, and even had uh, an influence now on the way government at the highest level tracks economic statistics. His name is Dr. Mark Skousen, um, and he is presidential fellow at um, Chapman University, where we recently had Vernon Smith uh, from Chapman um, and is associated with a number of other universities and is uh, the author of a half of a shelf of books at least um, and the founder of Freedom Fest, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Well, Jerry, this is a real pleasure, and it's good to see you and glad that you're in good spirits. We look forward to seeing you at Freedom Fest for the first time, and uh, I, I think we have you doing quite a few different events, so we're very excited. You do, and I've been talking with my my uh, panel participants over the past few days. We're going to do an interview uh, uh, in advance with Rob Arnott um, from Research Affiliates, uh, maybe, maybe Steve Moore. We're working on the scheduling there, um, so we're kind of doing a little bit of pregame uh, a little bit of a pregame show for some of the Freedom Fest interviews, and um, I'm looking forward to uh, participating. Um, let's. Well, why don't we start out by talking about Freedom Fest? Um, I yeah. know that I know that economics is on the agenda as well, and we just had this blowout gross output number, which is extremely important. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, so, talk to us about what Freedom Fest is. Where, where did it come from? Um, and how can people get involved? So let's go back to the beginning. Where's Freedom Fest come from? Freedom Fest comes from when I was president of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, which is the oldest free market organization, publisher, uh, foundation for economic education that Leonard Reed started. And I was made president in 2001, but it had kind of lost its luster. Uh, you know, Cato and Heritage and other foundations had become more uh, relevant. Uh, Fee continued to publish The Freeman, uh, but there really wasn't much going on. So my idea was, well, why don't we have a national convention? Why don't we bring together all the freedom organizations and make it a retail conference? You know, Heritage and others had had the resource bank and other things, but nobody had a conference where they brought all the think tanks together, all the freedom organizations together. It's like one-stop shopping for liberty and bring them together once a year. You know, we all live busy lives, but could we not bring together this, uh, all these uh, uh, various organizations? Uh, we, we often hear that we're a herd of cats and we go our different ways and so forth, but couldn't we once a year put aside our time and uh, doing all the things we do and gather to learn from each other, to network, to socialize, and to celebrate liberty? So... I started off with Fee Fest in 2002. We had it in Las Vegas, the world's most libertarian city. 
And it was a big success. We had 850 people there and uh, we had uh, Ben Stein as our keynote speaker, Charles Murray, Nathaniel Brandon. Uh, it was really uh, quite a, um, a spectacular event. Um, meanwhile, I did not survive as president of FEE because I was not a very good fundraiser. I mean, I'm a wealthy guy and everything, and, but I just had a hard time raising money. It takes a certain special skill. But I came uh, leaving that saying, well, we still ought to do Freedom Fest or what became Freedom Fest. So we worked with a nonprofit, with the Young Americans Foundation for a while. And then uh, in 2007, we became a for-profit event uh, we set up freedomfest.com. We had over a thousand people the very first time we met in Las Vegas. Now, uh, well, we've had 14 years of Las, uh, of uh, Freedom Fest. Um, it's been very successful. Uh, we've had every major political figure from Donald Trump to senators and people running for president, as well as uh, uh, major celebrity speakers like William Shatner and George Foreman and Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. We've had George George Will. We've had a whole series of uh, uh, you know Jordan Peterson, people like that, influential people, and it really has attracted a big uh, a, a big audience. Now, because we were shut down last year, and by, and by the way, Freedom Fest to uh, understand people need to understand that Freedom Fest is a kind of a Renaissance gathering. Mm -hmm. So, we so have it's, it's not just economics and political philosophy. You've got health, right. self-improvement, culture. I mean, you, philosophy, yeah. history, science and technology. So there's a little something for everybody. Lots of breakout sessions. We even have the Anthem Film Festival that my wife runs that's been very successful. And some uh, films have gone on to win uh, awards. And so the uh, Anthem Film Festival is a libertarian, freedom-oriented film festival, I should point oh, out. Oh, yes. Right, right. Yes. And we're the only successful libertarian film festival that's been around. Hmm. And one of the reasons is because we have a audience of several thousand people automatically interested in coming to the film. So, you know, most film uh, uh, film uh, festivals are in a city. You have to really publicize to get people to come and stuff. And a lot of times you walk in and there might be six people watching the film. At Freedom Fest, they're packed. Mm. Their people are standing room only. Uh, but at the same time, we were locked down last year uh, by the imperial governor of Nevada, and we didn't want to reward them again this year. The free, uh, Las Vegas is open again, but we decided to move to South Dakota to Rapid City near Mount Rushmore. And it has been a spectacular response from people. We have uh, 2,200 people already signed up. Uh, we could definitely have a record crowd approaching mm. 3,000 people before it's all through. You know, the biggest I'm, is, I'm yeah, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I, I like that a little better. Um, because there's, 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 it's almost like there's sort of two, at least two American libertarian traditions. And one of them fits well in Sin City, right? It's an emphasis not just on political freedom, but also an emphasis on, let's say, pushing the edge in terms of personal behavior, right? And then there's another tradition. A, a, it's almost like a cowboy um a, a, a free market conservatism that is associated with freedom it's frontier but it's um 
in conformity with traditional moral code. And, and you, you see what I'm saying? So there's a kind of libertarian who's all about pot and prostitution. And there's a kind of libertarian who's saying, listen, I, I, I want pot legalized, but I'm not going to smoke it. Right. Um, and I and I feel like there's there's always been a vying in the libertarian movement for the, the kind of libertarianism that is into self-government as opposed to civil government and the kind of libertarianism, libertarianism that's sort of just free, free, free. Um, and not even maybe not doesn't talk that much about self-restraint. And I sort of feel like South Dakota is a little bit more in the vibe of that traditional frontier American libertarianism. You, do you know what I'm driving at? It's a little bit of a subtle uh, point, but do you know what I'm saying? One, one hour away is De- uh, Deadwood, which uh, does have the Las Vegas atmosphere of gambling and well, that's and, true. Uh, and strip strip joints or whatever. Uh, you know, I we chose Las Vegas because there is a new Las Vegas that is upscale. It's not the old seedy Las Vegas that was just famous for gambling and mm. sex and uh, strip joints and and uh, lousy entertainment. Now there's first rate entertainment. There's five star restaurants. There's great places to buy quality products. The entertainment is out of this world. Uh, so we actually bring an intellectual feast to Las Vegas yes. and people. They have maximum freedom. There's no question about it. You can still get the, the the marijuana and the prostitution. I mean, it's not that hard to find. But at the same time, uh, there is room there for top quality entertainment, restaurants, great intellectual atmosphere. Right. And, and we like that a lot. However, I will say, uh, and maybe one of the reasons we have such a big turnout this year, is because not everybody likes Las Vegas. And we have a lot of people who said, man, thank goodness you moved and, and, and now you're in South Dakota. And, and actually we made a decision uh, that's a little bit different. So every other year, or we're gonna go to, back to Vegas. We're gonna be at the Mirage next, next July, but then we're gonna go to other cities. So we're gonna alternate. So it'll be Vegas and then New Orleans, then Alaska, then uh, Maine, uh, then Florida, Pittsburgh, uh, home of the whiskey uh, rebellion. Well, we, <laughs> we hadn't, uh, it's Pittsburgh not on your short list, huh? map, but maybe, maybe someday it could be. <laughs> uh, all right. So you're moving it around. I think that's interesting. That probably, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you mentioned, um, the intellectual feast, uh, because I think this is important. There are big conservative conferences, um, but it, they're, they can, they're not necessarily an intellectual feast. Sometimes I'm just, I'm not going to mention names cause this isn't about calling out names. This is just about talking about kind of different approaches. So you can have great big gatherings of people. And the idea might be to kind of like get them revved up emotionally, but maybe not a lot of transfer of knowledge, right? That, that, that's a, that's a business. That's a conference business model. Your conference business model is to appeal, I think, to intellectually curious people, not a focus on academics, um, but like people out there, they might be web developers, they might be engineers, they might be construction workers, but they're, they read books, they listen to podcasts, they're intellectually curious, they want to learn. They're there to learn, not necessarily to do a lot of hoo, hoo, hoo type stuff. I mean, is that do I have that right? Have I accurately described maybe one of the distinguishing features between Freedom Fest and some of the other right, yeah, right I, of center conferences? I actually wanted to create a conference that I personally want to attend. 
And that was my original idea. And it, it, it fits in with Steve Jobs and others who come up with the idea on their own and, well, maybe we'll see if, if there's enough uh, demand for it. And it turns out that there is. So uh, we, I originally called Freedom Fest all about great ideas, great books, and great thinkers. Yes. So that's an intellectual conference. This is why uh, we had Oscar Goodman, the mayor of Las Vegas, saying, you're doing something really unique. You're actually bringing in uh, an intellectual feast in, the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the entertainment capital of the world, and we really haven't had that. So you, for, I'll give you an example. So we're debating Murray Rothbard's fifth edition or fifth volume of Conceived in Liberty that just came out. It's on the Constitution in which he argues it was a power grab, that it was anti-libertarian, anti-liberty. It was all about centralizing government. James Madison is a, is a, is a bad guy in his uh, estimation. And all the other people who signed it and the great, uh, the great patriots are George Mason and others who refused to sign it because it wasn't uh, pro-liberty enough. So we're going to have a big debate on that. We have people in favor of Rothbard's thesis, and then we have constitutional experts coming in and disagreeing with that. Uh, we we have um, uh, Hershey Ali come, Ayan Hershey Ali come, who's the former Muslim who is doing, uh, written a lot of books on being heretical and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, we have uh, Dan Peterson coming in from BYU uh, Islamic Studies. We have others who are who are critical of her. So we have a lot of debates on somewhat intellectual topics that I think would have general interest as well. So you're right; it's not reading academic papers. We don't have anybody that I'm aware of that reads academic papers. Oh but wait, it, it, I, I was going to come and read an academic paper. Is that? Uh, uh, <laughs> I, You're one of Jesus, and uh, I, I have to change my plans now. All right, I'll I'll just do an interesting speech instead. Yes, please, please. You want, <laughs> and you got to save time for questions because we'll do. We don't like someone to just read a paper and that's it, and they run out of time. You know, there's another you know, point picking up on the debate about Rothbard, um, uh, Constitution, and Rothbard side of things versus those who favor the, I guess, the Federalist paper point of view. Um, and that is that is pushing the edge in terms of the discussion. I think your standard issue conservative conference would treat the founding of the United States, the founding, at least the constitutional founding, as untouchable. You can't question that. Uh, Federalist papers are holy writ. The Constitution is holy writ. And you would not you're not allowed to you know come along and say, oh, no, that was actually a power grab. Um, now, I, I like where the Constitution landed, but I like the fact that you're willing to bring, pre- bring people to the table that generally are kind of locked out of a lot of other conservative conversations who say, no, they, actually the Constitution um, was a step backwards in terms of liberty. You know, pe- I think people want a broader conversation. As much as we have cancel culture among gatekeepers, people with the, the hearers, the listeners want to hear as broad a set of ideas as possible. And then we'll, we'll put them through here and decide what we believe. So I think the broadness of the conversation is something worth bringing attention to. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. 
Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Jerry, I think you're right. And, and we have 16 debates at this year's Freedom Fest. And the Murray Rothbard is just one of them. We have another one on... What are the four economists who belong on Mount Rushmore? And that's going to be an interesting debate uh, and, and get people's perspective. Uh, there's, uh, I think you're not involved in this, but we do have one on the Catholic Church pro and con. And that's, that is really going to be a fun one with Doug Casey making, he grew up a Catholic and, and, uh, and is not uh, favorable toward the Catholic Church. <laughs> to say the There's least, I've interviewed Doug a couple of times. I, I would, yes, I would say he is not favorable toward the Catholic no, Church. No, definitely not favorable. <laughs> and who knows if he's going to bring his A game to this? But I have a feeling that's going to be a packed audience. But what other? I, I, I think would have debate. I don't know if it, his, his A game maybe his atheist game definitely. I think we can expect that. He's a fa- he's an interesting speaker, right? And. And oh, why, yeah. why not have the atheists there, right? I mean, yeah, why not have the ideas clash in a respectful way? Um, this is what John Milton argued in Areopagus. And you can't really be confident that you're coming to true conclusions unless you've heard the other argument in its best form. That's, that, yeah. that should, that's, that's the precursor to having confidence in your conclusions. And by the way, our debates are civil debates, and they're actually formal debates. We insist on a formal debate where you take five minutes and you make your point while the other person listens. We don't have all the interruptions like you have on Fox News and CNN and so forth. Uh, Although you see very few debates anymore, by the way, on Fox News or CNN. You know, they used to have a point-counterpoint kind of uh, debates and stuff. And now they just bring on people to nod their head and say, well, Tucker, you're right about this or or Chris, you're, you're right about that. And then they go on and on. I mean, it's just not what it used to be. And Freedom Fest is all about finding out the truth through the different opinions right. that people have. And we ask people to be very civil and not to engage in name, t- name calling and using these political labels of left and right and all of this stuff that divides people. We're looking for best solutions and, and proper answers to our questions. By the way, our, our most popular event is the mock trial. And this year we're putting the pandemic and the lockdown on trial. But I'm telling you, it took months for us to get people willing to uh, to stand up in front of a public audience and on television to defend the lockdown and so forth. You cannot believe how many people said, no, I guess I, I guess I won't appear. Interesting. I, I mean, a year ago, maybe you could have gotten someone to defend the lockdown, but you know, now with so much evidence having accumulated that the lockdown is harder to defend in retrospect, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we're, we have 12 jurors up there. So it can, it, you know, it can be uh, six to six. You never know with these, uh, uh, 
with these debates. Um, it's a form of debate, but in a mock trial. So Tom Woods of uh, the podcaster is our judge this year. And we, we have some really good uh, uh, defending and prosecuting attorneys and star witnesses. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Wonderful. Someone wants to sign up, they go to tripledubfreedomfest.com, right? That's right. Freedomfest.com. And we still uh, have uh, hotel rooms available and so forth. We have all the information. We have the full program listed at freedomfest.com, the full agenda and all the information on the speakers and stuff like that. So people should go to the uh, the website, freedomfest.com. We have an 800 number as well that you can call there if you have questions and so forth. But Wow, we have 2,200 people there. It's pretty exciting, and and the people, the local people, are just thrilled that we're we're bringing in five to ten million dollars. They said in revenues uh, coming into Rapid City, wow. so it's pretty exciting. And note the dot com. Ex- this is a have- this is a for profit, um, which means that your your incentives are not to please some donor. Your incentives are to please the attendees. Your, your customers. I'm glad you brought that up because we purposely chose to be for profit so that our customer are the attendees, and so we provide the best for attendees rather than providing the best to donors to raise more money. We don't do any fundraising at all. Lots of free market think tanks come and they raise money, and we encourage them to raise all the money they want, but we don't raise any money. You pay the fee. You pay your 400 bucks or $500 to come to Freedom Fest, and uh, that's it. We don't ask for anything more. Wonderful. All right. So um, how about we pivot over to uh, economics? Can we do that? Okay. All right. So um, uh, this is a book that had a big impact on not just my thinking, but um, on the economics profession and even the federal government. Now, the book that affected me the most— was the making of modern economics, but that's in my library right now, and my grandson is sleeping, so I can't go in there and get um, making of modern economics and hold it up to the camera so people can see that because I risk waking up little Arthur. So I'll hold up the my second favorite Skousen book, uh, the structure of production. But I wish I could show the making of modern economics. That's a that was a very good one as well. I've got it right here. If you can see it. Let me see. That's it. I remember that. <laughs> it all started with Adam. Um, and, yeah, and also this exactly. one. This is basically your kind of all-purpose textbook in understandable language. And um, what you do here is so interesting because it's not, you know, you can, you can buy a macroeconomics textbook or you can buy a microeconomics textbook or you can buy a finance textbook, or you can buy an accounting textbook. But in, in essence, what you've done here is you have integrated within each chapter um, a macroeconomics, microeconomics, economic history, but also the financial statement. So finance, economics are, are kind of together in one place. And no, I, no one has done anything remotely like that as far as I know. And it's a real achievement. So thank you for I'm, that. I- uh, Jerry, I really appreciate your, the fact that you realize that because honestly, uh, I have to tell people that. I say, have you noticed that in my textbook, I do something that no other uh, economist or economics textbook writer does? I start with the PL states. Yes. 
and profit and loss income statement, and not with supply and demand. I get there in chapter six, but I start with the P&L statement, and I find that students, especially business students, they get it right away. They really struggle with supply and demand curves. Why? Because they don't exist. It, it, it's hard to, you have to, they're artificial. It's an and, intellectual construct yeah, to help us, exactly. you know, uh, organize thinking. But there is no such thing as a supply curve. Show me the supply curve. The it's not a thing. And we, yeah. and there's a danger that economics reifies models and abstractions. Reify meaning to make to treat something unreal as though it's real, whereas profit and loss is a real thing. I'm sorry, I kind of interrupted you. Well, no, but uh, and so I start with the PL statement, and I have a little system of talking about revenues and costs and the profit margins and so forth. And what I point out is there there is no equilibrium with the PL statement. You can how much what's what's an appropriate return uh, rate of return on your investment? What is the rate of return on your business that's equilibrium? Zero. Is it 5%, 10%, 50%? It's unlimited. Theoretically, it's unlimited. You can earn as much money as you can. And and some companies have profit margins that exceed 25, 30, 50%, sometimes even 100% in some years. There is no equilibrium point. What there is is competition that will drive down your uh, profit margin and there will be a point where you just kind of stabilize uh, and Apple computers might be an example of that where they've they've kind of matured, they start paying a dividend and that sort of thing. So out of that, I do use supply and demand, but I and and supply and demand claims can be useful, but I it's a it's a second step. It's not the first step that I do with my company. So going my, back to equilibrium, I think the point that George Gilder and others have made is that if you start with the assumptions of the textbooks, which is something like perfect knowledge and perfect competition, then the equilibrium point for profit converges on zero, right? Because you just right. you, you just keep arbitraging away, you know. But in the real world, like you say, there's companies making 35 percent. So at, yeah. at some point you have to say, what am I going to do? What did uh, Groucho say? You're going to believe me or your lying eyes? I mean, at some point you have to look and say, even though economic theory sees profit margins kind of converging on zero in some kind of theoretical world of perfect knowledge and perfect competition, in the world, real world, things are always changing. Somebody creates a new technology that others can't imitate yet, and they get outsized profits and they can maintain those profits for a long time. Yeah, in fact, uh, I introduced Say's Law, which is grossly underestimated, even by the Austrians. And I'm not sure why, but in fact, uh, a lot of people are really shocked when they find out that uh, Human Action by Ludwig von Mises says nothing about Say's Law. Wow. But Say's Law is really the foundation of economic growth because what it's saying is the supplier, the producer, the entrepreneur is the catalyst in the economy, the disruptor who's coming up with the new products or a new production process or a, a new competitive model. I mean, who would have thought that Starbucks would really take off? I mean, people have been drinking coffee all their lives. They just go to the grocery store and you buy coffee. Why would you need a Starbucks, five, $10 Starbucks coffee, and yet, it has taken over the world. It's franchised all around the world. And uh, Schumpeter was really good on this. He's the best Austrian economist when it comes to disruptive technology. Hmm. He called it uh, uh, creative, creative destruction, destruction, right? 
which I don't really like. He actually took that from Marx and with the emphasis on destruction. I like creative disruption, which is Clay Christensen's term from the late Clay Christensen from Harvard. Uh, creative disruption is what I use in my textbook. But the point is that you're, that supply and demand curve, that point of equilibrium never exists. Right. It never exists. It doesn't exist in the real world. It's a, another no. theoretical construct. Um, and I really, I like that you're, you have a problem with the destruction. The idea, this is, this is a point that Peter Thiel makes in his book, Zero to One. The idea is not to destroy anybody. If you go in the market to destroy somebody, then you've got it wrong. You go into the market to solve a problem, to make a profit by creating something new that solves a problem for people. And that you, you will probably be less effective uh, if, if you go out there to destroy somebody um, or even to disrupt in some sense, as opposed to focusing on solving a problem. Um, so f- for Teal, competition is like, yeah, competition is going to come along, but you want to be so innovative that competition is, you know, no one even bothers to want to compete with you because you've done this, almost this creative singularity. Um, so the whole focus on destruction, I think, in market thinking, I think rhetorically weakens our position. It puts us on the side of destroying things as opposed to saying, let somebody put something creative out there and let people choose it. Now, that means that they might leave something and that means that the thing they leave might go out of business. But the going out of business, we don't celebrate that. It's not about making them go out of business. You know, it's sad when the buggy whip manufacturers have to go away. But that's but if inventing the car is it's better than a than a horse. And so it's great that they that, you know, the cars get invented. And, yeah, let's you know, we're not celebrating those who lose. We're not celebrating the fact that they lost. That's kind of a social Darwinism thing. We're celebrating the gain, not the side effect, which is that somebody lost market share. And I think that's a really different way of approaching economics. And say says law, I think, refocuses us on that. Yeah, it's normally called supply creates its own demand. But what it means is the the. The production and the sale of a product creates the demand for other products. And he actually used the example of uh, he had a, an agricultural community. And so when you had a, a bumper harvest, everybody was happy. They were going around with extra money and spending and stimulate the economy. But if there was a famine and there was no uh, production, uh, then everybody goes on uh, poor. Uh, and I use the example of Seattle, and I say, so students, why is Seattle so prosperous as a city? I mean, it's in a rainforest, and uh, it's it's got uh, you can go a year, uh, you can go months without seeing the sun. Uh, why would why would Seattle be a prosper? Is it because people suddenly pulled out their their wallets and spent all this money with their credit cards and so forth? I said no, it was because there were great entrepreneurs who create created gate. Great companies. And then I say, so students, what are the four or five biggest companies in Seattle that have uh, turned it into a behemoth in terms of prosperity? So can you name them? Can I name them? Yeah. Well, you've got Starbucks, right? You've you got Starbucks. We mentioned you, you, that. You got Microsoft. Yeah. Um, Microsoft. Very good. Um, Boeing. Boeing's- Boeing is the oldest one. Right. And there's one that's the biggest company in the world. Based in Seattle. The biggest company in the world based in Seattle. That's correct. But it wasn't 10 years ago. Starts with an A. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. 
Amazon. Oh, of course. How did I miss that? <laughs> I don't think of it as a I don't think of it as a regional company. I think of it as a global company. But yes. Well, yeah, but so is Boeing and Starbucks. They're all uh, international companies. They are. Right? I Microsoft. think the reason the reason I associate Starbucks is because um, you know Seattle is a coffee mecca. Right. And so uh, then it's spread out. So that's why I have the regional association and Microsoft, because I go to Seattle to do a fair number of speeches and a, a, a number of the people that I speak to are Microsoft executives or former Microsoft executives. But yeah. uh, but I don't have connections with Amazon. So, that you know, I, the Amazon people don't bring me to Seattle to speak. Um, you but. Know, it's uh, my students love this, by the way. I, 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 you know, I, I have to admit, uh, I will tell you that in 2019, I won the favorite professor award there as an adjunct. I only teach one class a semester, but I bring up these examples that students just love. For example, I say, now, why are the Oregon Ducks suddenly a powerhouse in the Big Ten, Big 12 uh, football, uh, college football teams? And, and, you know, there's kind of scratching their head because I grew up in Portland. I see. And of course, Portland, you, Oregon and Oregon State used to be terrible schools. And now they're powerhouses and they got new uniforms. They got the state of the art stadiums and equipment and so forth. And what is the reason? I don't know. What's the Phil reason? Phil Knight. I see. Nike. Ah, Nike yes. Got made it. Made the difference. Yes. You see, supply creates demand. <laughs> and by the way, when I asked my students, I said, so which is, which is when I start off this class, I start off with the question, okay, uh, Kane's law demand creates supply yes or is it saves loss supply creates demand and they almost all go to canes that mm -hmm. makes more common sense you got to have the demand for the product and that sort of thing mm -hmm. by the end of the class one hour later they flipped they've totally flipped and now they're in favor of saves law and canes law it demonstrates the power a professor can have in influencing students and this is the biggest danger that we face today is all these professors are socialists and they're teaching our young people socialism hmm. we've got to change that around so i'm writing the textbooks to and, and teaching uh doing what i can doing my part to turn things around and and so we have advocates for free market capitalism what i call democratic capitalism yes yeah i think the first time i interviewed thomas Sowell, this was way back it was on his book, Say's Law, um, which I think was his doctoral dissertation. That's correct. Under Milton Friedman. And so I think a, a lot of people know. No, it was under George Stigler. Oh, it was under Stigler? By okay, the, got it. By right. the way. But Friedman his, was a big influence, his, I guess. Yeah. His book on Say's Law is incomprehensible. I'm sorry to say, Jerry, but I don't think he got it, to be honest with you. It was, it's, it's hard to read, but I think it that is. it was a big shift for him. <laughs> I think without that theoretical shift, which is... I think Say's Law causes us to um, throw away the surface level apprehension of the economy and get deeper in. And a lot of soul after that is I'm going to throw away the surface level comprehension of an issue and get deeper in. Uh, and of course, that's what we what I've tried to do with gross output. All right, let's get into uh -huh. gross output. Um, so gross uh, uh, gross output did you think of it when you were writing this book or was it already kicking around in your head? What got you started on gross output? So uh, what happened was I tried to deal with this paradox in economics. 
why is it that consumer spending drives the economy, that 70% of the economy is consumer spending? So the consumer drives the economy and business is second. If you look at GDP, 70% of GDP is, is consumer spending. And then the next category is government spending. So between the consumer and uh, the government, uh, that's those are the big elephants in the room. Okay, Meanwhile, stop, business stop. Yeah, yeah. 70% of GDP is consumer. Yeah. Now, right. that becomes I've I've been on TV debating Robert Reich, you know, etc. That comes out in the form of the oft repeated 70% of the economy is yeah. consumer. But that's right. not what you said, right? You didn't say 70% of the economy is consumer. You said 70% of GDP is the consumer. So I just want to put that – that's like a little post-it note because that's an important distinction that's going to become clearer as you as I let you get back on track with what you were saying. Well, and, and see, that's the whole point is that the media thinks that what GDP measures is the value of the economy, all right? So on that basis, even though it is correct, accurate to say that consumer spending is 70% of GDP, they translate that to think, oh, well then consumer spending is the biggest sector in the economy. And we need to look at retail sales. If only people would spend all year round like they do at Christmas time, the economy would boom. There seems to be that kind of mental attitude. Or if you get a tax cut, if you get a check in the mail, the government gives you a tax break. Don't put it in the bank. Don't put it in the stock market. No, no, you need to go out and buy a car. You need to go out and spend it. Uh, There is this consumer society kind of mentality. Now, the paradox is if you look at what causes economic growth, if you look at economic growth theory, You'll see in studying all the uh, economist studies show that's on the supply side. It's productivity, it's savings, it's investment, it's innovation, it's entrepreneurship. Uh, It's all of these things that technology, this is what drives the economy. This is what gives you higher economic growth. Consumer spending is the effect, not the cause of prosperity. So how do you reconcile? My question when I was writing the structure of production, I was trying to reconcile this paradox. Consumer spending drive the economy or is it business investment that drives the economy? Uh, There was this contradiction. And I discovered the reason for it is that GDP leaves out the supply chain. It leaves out all the B2B, the business-to-business spending that brings the production process along the way. Like the Starbucks coffee is an example. So in Starbucks coffee, you measure only the cup of coffee that you drink. Yes. So you leave out completely the uh, beans that have to be crushed, that have to be uh, uh, burned and heated and, 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 and then has to be transferred in these bags to uh, Starbucks. That's all left out. That whole supply chain is totally left out. When you add it in, you get what is called gross output, which is the which I call it gross domestic output in my book, The Structure of Production, which I wrote in 1990. And I said, if you use gross output and measure spending at all stages of production, it turns out that consumption is about a third, not two thirds, but about a third of the total spending in the economy. 
Now, business spending is over 60% and government spending is in the third place. So you basically flip this chart completely around with the GO model or with the GDP model, consumption is the big elephant in the room and government. In the GO model, business is the key factor. And so the GO model is more consistent with economic growth and the media and the economists have done a terrible job in the textbooks to, uh, they fail to report that GDP is this uh, narrow definition, final output only. It's the finished products, you know, it's the, it's the drinks that we have, it's the mm. cell phone, it's the cell phone that we use, it's the, it's the pans, it's, uh, the day timer that I still use. I mean, what you're wearing, everything you and I are wearing, that's in GDP. Right. But it's none of the production process. Right. That's all left out, and it's bigger than GDP itself. We the latest statistic shows that gross output is over forty trillion dollars. GDP is twenty one. Hmm. So that biases policymakers, right? If we're trying to maximize GDP then we'll keep trying to stimulate demand to maximize GDP rather than stimulate supply to maximize gross output. Now, you'll get, because Say's law, because Say's law's production um, creates, you know, uh, um, production precedes uh, consumption is another way to say that, right? That uh, production leads to consumption. Um, it does lead to consumption. So an economy with a growing GO will tend to have a growing GDP. In other words, if we're all being productive, then we get to consume a lot. But the I, I, my, one of my professors in college used to say, um, uh, Kurt Rethwish, he said, um, the only place consumption comes before production, he said, there's only one place where consumption comes before production. Where is that? And we're all scratching our heads because he's been, he'd been pounding Say's Law into our head. He said, in the dictionary, in the dictionary, consumption <laughs> comes before production. But in the real world, production comes before consumption. So if you, oh, yeah. if, you want G, if you really want GDP growth down the line, then you want GO now. You want, to do, you want a policy environment which encourages gross output. Yeah, in fact, uh, we've, just, we've been doing all kinds of studies on gross output, as you have as well. And we find out it's a leading indicator it does give you a sense of where economic growth and final output is headed. And it's very um, positive when you see gross output growing faster than GDP. That means the supply chain is gearing up, thinking that consumers are going to buy more in the future, in the future. Right. And uh, this last quarter was really amazing where GO grew at a, a almost 12% uh, real rate uh, GDP about 6%. So you almost had a uh, GO growing twice as fast as, as real GDP. That's a positive, uh, you know, you'd think the Biden administration would really jump on that and say, wow, things are doing well. Yeah, well, yeah, but it's a hangover from probably the previous administration's tax policy. And it's also an adjustment to COVID. So um, I don't think they can take credit for that because that, to me, that's almost an argument for hands off. In other words, when I look at a gross output number like that, and we've had very little Biden administration policy implementation, what I would say is 
leave it alone. Leave well enough alone. We're coming out of this. We're we're booming out of this COVID shutdown. Don't change anything. So maybe they don't want to emphasize the strength of the recovery because if the, if the recovery is so strong, then they lose the political momentum to impose some kind of stimulatory uh, policies. You see what I mean? Yeah. Well, there are some problems. I, I mean, I don't want to suggest that uh, the Biden administration, everything looks great and keep keep going and doing the same because they are proposing. Well, for example, uh, in the labor market, uh, with with this generous uh, unemployment compensation of three hundred dollars a week and so forth, it, it has been a problem yes. getting uh, labor to come back to work uh, and the economy is booming. So that means the workers that are there are more productive. Technology, let me tell you something that's really interesting that I just saw just last month. They did a, a global survey. Uh, I can't remember who, who did the survey, but they said, uh, uh, what, are the, what institutions do you trust the most? And they gave the choice of government, NGOs, non-government agencies and charities, churches, or businesses. Turned out that business now has the number one trust level ahead of government, ahead of NGOs, and ahead of churches. Wow. Why? Because they're the ones who solve the problems. Yes. They brought out the vaccines. They brought out Zoom that we are on. Mm-hmm. They allowed you to be at home, and, and, and Amazon delivered products to your homes. I knew a person who never left for a whole year never left the house for a whole year because of the, they were so scared to death of the COVID. Hmm. And how is that? How did you do that without going insane? And the answer is, of course, Amazon and Zoom and uh, Starbucks and, and streaming and, services. You know, you know, you can binge watch, you know, and uh, yes, <laughs> Netflix, yep. uh, entertainment. It truly is rem- uh, amazing. And people have recognized that, uh, They've increased their trust in government. So tr- government's not the bad guy like it was uh, year, years ago. On Maybe it still is on Hollywood, but uh, uh, among uh, the average person, they have a greater trust. And this was a global survey, by the way. It wasn't just the United States. Hmm, interesting. So let me, um, let me let, let's nuance this gross output thing a little bit. Um, so you've pointed out, gross output, and I've seen it myself in the data, it's more volatile than GDP, which means there's more signal. In other words, the a, a metric that doesn't change doesn't signal anything to me. If, if you know, I mean, you know, gravity is a constant. It never changes. I'm not going to learn anything about it. But metrics, you know, um, forecasting metrics or whatever, when there's delta in it, when there's change, then there's something that we can interpret. So gross output is helpful to us because it shows change better than GDP, right? I think there's a couple of things that you get from this gross output, which by the way, I call the top line in national income accounting and GDP is the bottom line. So I don't want to suggest that we're throwing out GDP and we're only going with gross output. GDP does serve a purpose. You are finding out what the value is of finished final goods and services which does represent what you use. So it does represent, it's a crude way of representing our standard of living. 
but it's not a very good measure of the business cycle, the ups and downs of the economy. Do you realize that in 2008, 2009, during that terrible, crushing uh, financial crisis and great recession, GDP dropped two or three percent right. in real terms. Right. That's it. That's it. Right. But gross, gross output dropped ten percent or more. The supply chain itself dropped twenty percent or more. And so there's there's the business cycle. The business cycle is in the business statistics. The other thing that you notice is that uh, consumer spending is like a dead man. I mean, there's no heartbeat at all. Right. It's just steady, steady, steady. Now. Granted, during the uh, the recession of a uh, great recession of 2008, there was a slight decline, and also there was a severe decline in consumption in March of last year. Uh, but but it, it bounced back very quickly because it was so artificial in that respect. Got it. So you don't really learn a lot. This whole idea that let's look at retail sales, what retail sales are doing. Let's look at what consumer spending. And, and you'll notice that the top 10 indicators that the conference board comes out every month, they come out with the leading indicators. And what do they highlight? The, uh, the consumer, uh, uh, in consumer confidence. confidence. Yep. Yeah. The consumer confidence index, which is, a, but if you actually look at the, it's a terrible actually, index. I actually it, wrote to them and asked, and, and in essence, it, I, I thought, hey, consumer confidence will really help me because it, it'll tell me how confident consumers are about their own picture, right? Because they know their life better than anybody else. But most of the questions are about how they think the economy in general is doing. So the consumer confidence index just reflects back to the news media the impression that the news media gives to it. So people read the newspaper, you know, or they watch, you know, business TV, and then someone calls them and asks their opinion, and they just repeat back to the media what the media has been saying to them. As a yeah. as as a statistic or as a forecaster, it's utterly useless. I, I, if it has any signal or correlation at all, it's an inverse correlation with market performance. It's almost a contrarian indicator. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. It, the misnomer is the title consumer confidence because all they're doing is interviewing consumers, which is true. But look at the questions, like you say, what they're asking. Right. Well, what about your job? Well, that's a business question. Yes. What's your outlook for the economy? That's a business question. Right. And they even ask, well, are you going to be, make a major purchase in the next year, like a car or something like that? And yes, a car is a consumer item, but it's also a capital good because it, it, it has a long shelf life. Right. Are you going to buy a house? Well, they actually put housing in the investment sector in the economy, even though it's it's a long-term consumer good right. because it lasts so much. Ever. However, the index, do, the, the uh, confidence index, they do ask one consumer question, which is they don't ask about buying goods and food and entertainment and stuff like that. They ask one question. Are you planning a vacation over the next six months. Now that is a consumption issue. That is a consumer issue. But they've actually, because of my criticism and your criticism, they actually changed the name. It's now called the Consumer Confidence Index of Business Conditions. Ah, they added. I see. Good. Yeah. That's a step in the. That's a step in but, the right direction. The point I want to make is, if you look at all the other top ten, the top ten leading indicators. They're all in the supply chain. It's manufacturing of goods and services, capital goods, the stock market, interest rates, 
uh, that it's it's got very little to do with consumption and has everything to do with business. Right. Now, the so, question but, is, do the general consumers actually have much insight on those things? Right. I mean, I mean, those those are business questions that you're asking to people who aren't necessarily business people, which is why I favor when you're doing kind of confidence surveys, I favor those, um, you know, supply manager, you know, ISM index type um, surveys, because you're actually asking people who are running the supply chain in real time what's going on. And what I noticed is that group tracks very well with GO. So if I go back now, unfortunately, we got to wait three months for GO, right? But if I yeah. go back and look at GO over history, gross output over history, and then even more, let's say you look at gross output and then you pull out government and you pull out GDP, right? So you're really isolating in on the supply chain. Now, you have right. a way you do that that's more sophisticated the way, than the way I do it. I don't do the inventory adjustment. So mine is a cruder one, but it's still you know good enough. So I take out GDP and then I take out government. And you know, now, G- government's in GDP too, so you have to counter that. But you get the idea. Take, take um, final, uh, take consumer and take government out. And what should be left over is something like business output. And then correlate that with surveys that know that they're business surveys, like the ISM or the market surveys. They're not pretending to be consumer surveys. They are producer surveys and that level of optimism. And it's shocking how well they track together. Um, That in other words, the people who are managing the supply chain know what's going on in the supply chain. Um, So you can see, and that's a way maybe to get it. If I wanted to predict GO, because we have to wait three months, I I would use ISM, which is real time to predict geo. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think I think it's something that uh, uh, these business surveys are are much more helpful. Absolutely. Uh, so you, you're you're digging deeper. But by the way, I do have a website on gross output, and it's very simply grossoutput.com. If people want to see all my academic papers, and I also do a press a press release every three months uh, whenever this government statistic comes out. And you're right, by the way, my biggest bugaboo with them is they're so slow in their delays. GDP comes out and then gross output comes out later. And gross output should come first because it's the top line of national income accounting. It should come out first and then GDP, but instead it's just the reverse. And if you actually go to the BEA website, it's BEA.gov, on the front page, you cannot find. You can't find it. I, I, first time I went there, I had to spend like fifteen minutes trying to even find the statistic. Yeah, yeah, they bury it because they don't believe in it themselves. They put it out there because they know it need. They need to have some kind of a measure of the supply chain because it, uh, of its value, uh, but they don't know quite what to do with it. And I've kept trying to uh, pressure them to say, "Listen." You need, you need to issue it at the very same time, just like publicly traded companies, when they issue their uh, quarterly earnings report, it's top line, bottom line. They got all the data right there. Right. Uh, national income accounting needs to catch up with, with accounting and finance where you put the top line and the bottom line coming out at the exact same time. Well, as a citizen, I'd want them to make it more available. But as an entrepreneur, I kind of like the competitive advantage of using a metric which is really important 
that almost nobody knows about. So I'm a little conflicted on this one. Um, no, no, you're you're right. And so uh, we're hoping you'll be a billionaire in, in short order as a result of your <laughs> abilities with using gross output. Roger Leroy Miller, one of the top economists who writes uh, economics today, he, he made that point to me. He says, well, Skousen, if, if GO is such a great predictor, why aren't you a billionaire? And I said, well, the problem is the government comes takes forever to put the statistics out by time it comes out it's um, it's too late it's there's too much of a delay hmm. all right uh, we're we're at um our allotted time is there anything else you want to leave us with before you've given generously of your time and i appreciate that anything else you want to leave us with before uh, we let you go you know i really look forward to seeing everybody at freedom fest uh coming up uh if they can go to freedomfest.com you will be there a lot of top economists and political people notice the way so he said forth. that i'll be there and a lot of top economists <laughs> so you can get you can get so, me let, or you, but you can also get top Jerry. economists on top of that so what do we know whatever you want yeah. you want mediocre you want top that it's your call it's freedom after all right well we do optionality we do people like steve moore and john fund and grover norquist are almost household names if you watch tv very much you and i nobody even knows who we are but we are good economists that's for sure thank you that's a high praise so, indeed coming from you mark skousen's uh thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and for your decades of excellent work in doing the hard work of economics um, and the breakthroughs that, uh, you know, really original breakthroughs that you've made in that science uh, that I think are going to echo down for generations in the future. Thank you for that. Jerry, thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.